All right. Hey, good morning. Be free. Um, Verses coming to mind. I don't even remember where it is. Um, but outdo one another in showing honor. Um, I've been honored. Thank you. Um, I wish I had time to honor everybody here who deserves honor. Um, so thank you for loving us and, and encouraging me in that way. It's, it, it's uh, more than I deserve. So thank you so much, brother, brothers, sisters. Um, another thing, I, I feel like I should say this. Uh, Livy and I are going to be disappearing here. In a couple weeks, this baby's coming. Uh, we don't know when it's coming. Uh, so, yeah, I know, we're excited. Uh, but, you know, you might come here some Sunday morning and find uh, things a little different than normal. Uh, but be praying for us. Uh, I, we haven't shared this story with everybody, but the baby's bowels are dilated. And what that means is that uh, for some reason, things are going into the baby's mouth but not coming out uh, the other end. So either there's an underdeveloped intestine uh, a blockage of some sort, some kind of bowel obstruction. And so because of that, there's a chance that we might have a NICU stay coming up for us in the next couple weeks. So be praying. Or not, not us, but the baby, obviously. Uh, be praying for that baby. Uh, we love him already, and uh, we would love for him to not have to stay in the NICU. <laughs> and we'd love to be back together with you guys here soon rather than later. later. All right, so we are uh, a Christ-centered family that glorifies God by loving Him, loving others, and making disciples. That's who we are, that's what we do, and that's how we seek to do it. Now, over the last six weeks, we've been going through that mission statement week by week, picking it apart, trying to understand it, trying to root it in Scripture, and trying to figure out what it looks like for us to live it out. But now we're back in the book of Acts at long last. Uh, I am really, really excited to finally be back in the book of Acts. From time to time, we'll do these series where we'll bring a topic, an idea to the Lord, Uh, or to scripture and say, all right, Bible, tell us what you have to say about this thing. And that's what we've been doing over the last couple weeks with our mission statement. All right, uh, Bible, tell us, God, tell us through your word what you have to say about who we are called to be. But the bread and butter of our church isn't to bring an idea to the scriptures and say, all right, what do you have to say, God, but rather just to open God's word, lay it in front of us, unzip it, unpack it, pull out its riches, and delight in what we find here. Believe what we find, uh, obey what it requires, and delight in the God that it reveals to us. That's the bread and butter of what we do on Sunday morning. So we're doing that now, again, in the book of Acts. Now let me bring us up to speed on where we're at in the book of Acts. I'm going to try to do it really quickly. The book of Acts is the story of the birth and the spread of Christ's church here on earth. In a nutshell, that's what it is. Chapter 1, verse 8 says this. Jesus says to his disciples, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That statement is not only a summary of what we see in the book of Acts, it's almost a table of contents for us. Because in the very next chapter, what do we see in chapter 2? We see power come upon this church, and they begin bearing witness to Jesus Christ there in Jerusalem, and they continue to do it all the way through chapter 7. They're bearing witness, the message, the compelling message of Jesus, and they're living in the compelling community. The church explodes with 3,000 people and grows daily with healings uh, and hostility. But in all of it, God provides, God protects, God builds and grows his church. Chapter 8, we see that Stephen, the, the, uh, well, Stephen uh, he's, he dies for his faith. He's the first martyr And with that comes this great persecution which leads Christians in Jerusalem to scatter all around Judea and Samaria. 
And the amazing thing that we have to see about that is that the message that caused them to be persecuted, they brought with them, and they continued to speak it. They refused to shut up about it, but brought it with them wherever they went. And the good news of Jesus Christ spread throughout Judea, Samaria, and we also read about how a man named Paul, or Saul, who was head over the murder of Stephen, becomes the great apostle of the church. Chapter 13 and forward, where we are now, we see Paul and some of his friends going on journeys around not just Judea and Samaria, but to the ends of the earth. So that's where we're at. Chapter 16, verse 1, is where we are today. And in the immediate context, this is what's been going on. Paul and Barnabas have come back from their first missionary journey. They come and bear witness of the fact that Gentiles are receiving the gospel. They're believing it. Holy Spirit is coming upon them. And the council in Jerusalem decides, you know what? We have to come to terms and come to a final conclusion. What does this mean for Gentiles? Do Gentiles have to follow Jewish laws if they're going to follow Christ? And the conclusion is no. Gentiles don't have to follow Jewish laws if they're going to follow Christ. All you have to do is repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And so what we find now is that Paul and Barnabas want to go back to all these churches, visit them again, see how they're doing, and share with them this good news. You can eat a hot dog if you want to eat a hot dog. You don't have to get circumcised. You just have to believe in Jesus Christ. That's the message that they're bringing with them, especially that hot dog one. But the problem is there was a division, right? Paul wanted to go. He did not want to bring Mark because Mark abandoned them on their first journey. Barnabas, son of encouragement, he wanted to bring uh, Mark with them. And so what we found in chapter 15 is that Paul and Barnabas divide. Paul goes north with a friend, Silas. Barnabas goes west uh, with his friend, or cousin actually, Mark. If we put the map up here on the screen, you can see. Actually, I'm sorry, I don't have that slide. Never mind, but that's what happens. Paul and Barnabas, oh, we do, okay. Paul and Barnabas uh, divide. Barnabas and Mark go west. Paul and Silas go north. There we go. And so for the rest of this book, we follow Paul. We watch him as he goes north with Silas, and we see where the Lord brings him and how the Lord uses him. Now, Paul's context is radically different than our own. He, in there in Antioch, is 5,300 miles away from right here at Prospect Mountain High School. That's far. Time-wise as well, this all happened 1,972 years ago. He eats different food than us. He speaks different language than us. He, he has a different culture than us. But the thing that Paul and we all share in common is that we have the same master. We've been given the same mission. And that means we bear the same message. So as we look at what Paul does, we get a model, we get lessons about what it looks like for us <laughs> to fulfill the mission, to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Radically different context, but Acts 16, verse 1 through 5, where we are today, we're going to learn a few things, a few examples from him about how we can make disciples today. So join me in Acts chapter 16, verse 1 through 5. It's a little, little passage. It's a good one. I'm excited. Let's do it. I'll read it for us, and then I'll pray briefly. Paul came also to Derbe and Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. 
and his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in number daily. Let me pray really briefly again for us. Heavenly Father, we believe these words are your words. So because of that, we don't just want to read them and learn them with our heads. We want to live them with our lives. Show us what it looks like to do that today. Shape us through this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, now if we could put that uh, same slide back up here on the screen. Because this is the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey. And as Paul, or Barnabas and Mark go west, Paul and Silas go north. The end of chapter 15 tells us that they go through these regions of Syria and Cilicia. It's hard to see on that map, but that's where they're going. And then the beginning of our passage today tells us that they come to these two cities, Derby and Lystra. Now, if we could put the next slide up here on the screen, this is Paul's first missionary journey. And it shows us that he goes in a C-shape formation, right? Going across, across the island of Cyprus, over and around to Derby, And then he and Barnabas turn around and trace their steps back until they sail back to Antioch. So in a nutshell, what Paul is doing here is he's going back to the churches that he planted before, starting his journey where he ended his last one. So that shows us where he's going. Now, what is he doing? What is he doing as he goes? We already know their plan was to return and visit the brothers in every city and proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. But in this passage, right before it, rather, Acts 15, 41, we read that they were going about strengthening the churches. Now, what does that mean? We get a clear answer to that at the end of our passage today. Let me read again for you 16 verses 4 and 5. This summarizes what they're doing on this journey. That as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. So in other words, they came to these churches, and they had a message they wanted to tell them, an update. (laughs) This is what you've missed since we last saw you, all the leaders gathered together in Jerusalem. Hey, do these Gentiles have to follow Jewish laws? Do Jews who are now Christians have to continue fulfilling and living out these Jewish laws? The answer is no. Let's have a barbecue. Let's eat those hot dogs. We don't have to get circumcised. We don't have to follow these laws. We're good to go. Just follow Christ. That's the message that they were bringing. That's the message that they were sharing uh, with all these churches. Just come to Jesus. So we know the root. We know the message. What's the result? Verse 5. Let me read it to you again. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in number daily. Two results. Do those sound familiar? (laughs) Maybe a little bit like what we were talking about last week. We see that their faith grew deeper and their family grew larger. Their faith grew deeper, family grew larger. They matured as disciples and they made new disciples. And last week when we were in the Great Commission, we saw that that's exactly the two same categories. Go therefore and make disciples, Jesus said. How? By baptizing and teaching. Baptizing, making new disciples, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. In other words, helping these young disciples mature 
in the faith. That's our passage. It's short. It's simple. When I think about this passage, I don't mean to harp on the whole hot dog idea, but it's almost like a pig in a blanket. It's short and delicious, but the meat's in the middle. The really important part of this passage is actually the part that we jumped over. So I want to jump back to that now. But to summarize what we see, big picture is this. You see that Paul and Silas are traveling and teaching in order to make immature disciples. That's the big picture. I'm going to say it two more times. Paul and Silas were traveling and teaching in order to make immature disciples. Paul and Silas were traveling and teaching in order to make immature disciples. But let's pivot to the meat in the middle. Two and a half verses right in the middle that, honestly, are a lot more complicated than they look like at first, but far more helpful as well. So let's dive in there. I'm going to read verses one, second half of verse one, actually, through uh, three, verse three. Let me read it. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. Every detail here matters. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Okay. Every detail here matters. (laughs) Every little bit of this story, it almost feels like a side note, but it's really important. There's a lot we can learn from it. Right off the bat, what we know about Timothy is that he is a follower of Jesus Christ. He is called a disciple here. We also know about his heritage. We know about his family. That his mother, where is it? His mother was a, a Jewish believer, but his father was Greek. So what that means, he was ethnically uh, uh, um, Greek and Jewish. Also religiously, because if his father was a Greek believer, I think they would have mentioned that. He makes a point, Luke, who writes this, he makes a point to say, no, his mother was a Jewish believer. His father was Greek. His parents were on different pages. And what's interesting about this is that he was spoken well of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Now, Lystra and Iconium, they're, they're next to each other, but they're not close necessarily. These two towns, um, we saw on the map a moment ago, they're close. They're still 20 miles away. So Lister and Iconium would be a little bit like Alton and Meredith. You know, we're, we're in the same region, but we're not living right on top of each other. You know, we're, we're close. And so what's interesting is that Paul gets a good report of this guy from the people of multiple towns. And what that means is that Timothy, he's not just involved in the Christian community there, but rather he's involved likely in serving in that area serving between these churches. He's not just known, he's respected, because the Christians of this whole region have been able to likely witness the ministry that he does amongst the churches. So when Paul gets a good report of Timothy, it's not just that he's being told that Timothy's a good guy, but rather, more likely, that he's going to be a faithful partner. He's going to be a faithful partner, a helpful partner in the ministry that he's going to be trying to continue. So for that reason, Paul wants Timothy to accompany him. And so I want to just pause here to, to point something out. Paul understands something. We see it here and we see it throughout his, all of his ministries. Paul knew that he didn't need to do the work that God was calling him to do alone. 
Paul knew that his ministry would be better if he got good help. We see that with Timothy here. Uh, We see that with the fact that he uh, partnered with Barnabas, that he brought Mark with him, that he's bringing Silas with him. That good help is hard to find, but good help helps. And he knows that, and so he asked Timothy to come with him. And while it didn't go very well with Mark, it does go well with Timothy, because we can look forward to the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verse 22, where uh, Paul says this about Timothy, that you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Paul knows that you don't have to do this work alone. And so for us, as we think about the ministry that God has given us, whether it's official or unofficial, whether it's people in our lives that we're called to make disciples of or, or, uh, or in some official capacity, I think that we can look at this and take away from it. Who is it that God is calling you to bring alongside you, to help you in the mission he's given you? Everybody's been given responsibility for different people, but... Who are you laboring alongside? Because we don't have to do it alone. We talked about this last week, how Jesus says, I am with you always to the end of the age. So yes, Jesus is with us. But the church is also with us. We have brothers with us. So, for those of us here who are leading ministries in the church, in official capacities, who are your Timothys? Find your Timothy. Don't do it alone. Who's serving faithfully already? How can you bring them in and ask them to partner with you more intentionally? Or maybe you're not leading a ministry around here. Maybe you're uh, just attending or, or volunteering and serving. I want to encourage you, be that Timothy. <laughs> be a faithful Timothy. Be the helper. We can do more together than we can apart. And also, don't sell yourself short. You have the Spirit of the living God dwelling inside of you, and He has gifted you to do the work that He has called you to do. And what about parents? Parents are called to make disciples of their kids. I want to encourage you, parents, don't do that work alone. If you're married to another, uh, to, and your spouse is a follower of Jesus Christ, partner together. Pray together for your kids. From time to time, Olivia and I like to talk about our daughter and just wonder, okay, where is she at in her walk with the Lord? And what does she need to take the next baby step? in her faith. Have that conversation with your spouse. What does it look like for us to do that? Have that conversation about your grandkids. What's my role in helping them take their next baby step? How can I be a Timothy to my kids in raising and discipling my grandkids? And what about at work? We all go to work with people who do not know Christ. What does it look like for us to be on mission at work? Christian, don't do it alone. (laughs) Are there other Christians in your workplace? Can you partner partner together to pray for those you work with that don't know Christ? Can you partner together to to, to maybe uh, have a Bible study? Do something to invite them in and share with them the message. Don't do this alone. Don't go on mission alone. And there's a thousand other examples. But my encouragement for you, from Paul's example here, that wherever you're seeking to make disciples, don't do it alone. Invite others in. But as we get back into this passage, though, the real thing that jumps out to us, when we read these two and a half verses right here in the middle, 
is a bit more of a head-scratcher, and I wonder if, if you caught it. If you remember, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, so what does he do? He took him, verse 3, and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. <laughs> do you see the problem? <laughs> what is the message that they're going from church to church to tell people? They're going from church to church throughout the region saying, you don't have to be circumcised. You can eat hot dogs. You, can, you don't have to follow the Old Testament law. And then to bring him with them, he says, but let's circumcise you first. What's going on there? Is this just complete contradicting? Uh, is he completely contradicting himself? I don't think so. And here's why. It is impossible to read Paul's letters and think that he thinks circumcision does anything to change your standing before the Lord. I don't have them up here, but I'm going to rattle some of these passages off to you. 1 Corinthians 7, 19, he says, he says this, For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. Galatians 5, 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Galatians 6, 15, For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. Okay, again and again and again. Paul, we get it. It doesn't do anything. Circumcision, uncircumcision makes no difference at all. He makes it abundantly clear. It does not affect a Christian's standing before God. So why'd they do it? <laughs> why does he want to make sure to circumcise him if it makes no difference at all? Let me tell you a story, and this story will make it clear. In 1865, a man named Hudson Taylor... Yorkshireman, an Englishman, sails a five-month boat journey from Liverpool and lands on the shores of Shanghai, China. Now, over the course of that, there was, uh, there was, the boat almost goes down. He lands in Shanghai. There's a civil war going on. But still, he gets there, and immediately he goes out to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people of China. And now when he goes from town to town, he goes on 18 different journeys through towns and towns preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to these people to very little effect. In fact, as he's going on these journeys, he earns for himself a nickname called the Black Devil. Because <laughs> as he walks into these towns, he's wearing this English black traveling cloak to bring this message. You see, the people in China were not ready to hear <laughs> The message from the black devil, this man who, in their eyes, looked no different than all the other soldiers and all the other dock workers from England. He was just some other Westerner, some other guy who's coming in to, to tout his own Western ideas. And so what Hudson Taylor did was he took off his coat. He put on Chinese clothing, traditional Chinese clothing, the type of clothing they were wearing in the villages. Not just that, he shaved his head. He shaved all of his head except for a little ponytail, a little pigtail at the back called a bayanzi. In other words, he dressed like a, China, a Chinese person. A Chinese, uh, he, he fit the culture of the day. And his countrymen mocked him for it. His countrymen laughed at him for it. They made fun of him saying that what he was doing was ridiculous. But the problem is he wasn't there to gain his countrymen's respect. He wasn't there to reach his countrymen. He was there to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Chinese people. That's why he went. 
And if his clothes were going to be a barrier to bringing that mission to fulfillment, man, he was going to tear that barrier down. In his own words, this is what he says about what he was doing there. He writes, I have this slide here. In Chinese dress, the foreigner, though recognized as such, okay, so they know he's still a foreigner, escapes the mobbing and crowding of which in many places his own costume would subject him. And in preaching, while his dress attracts less notice, his words attract more. His coat was stopping the gospel from reaching the ears of the Chinese. So he takes it off. (laughs) He cuts his hair. He puts on different clothing. Because, man, if the way he dresses gets, uh, gets in the way, becomes a barrier of the Chinese hearing a gospel, man, that is a no-brainer. That's just wise. He's comparing what matters with what doesn't matter here. His clothing doesn't matter in comparison to the gospel being heard by the Chinese people. Not just that, but it was effective. In fact, by the, uh, in, over the next hundred years, for, for a while there, his ministry, the China Inland Mission, becomes the biggest mission-sending agency in the world. Not just that, but it's biblical. It's wise, it's effective, it's biblical. Because as Andy read at the beginning here, 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23, I'll read it again. Paul does the exact same thing. It's what he says. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant of all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessing. If it truly doesn't matter, and it's getting in the way of the gospel, tear it down. If it truly doesn't matter, and it's getting in the way of the gospel, spread, throw it out if you need. And this is why Paul circumcises Timothy. (laughs) He took him with him on this journey and circumcised him. Why? Because the Jews who were in those places knew that his father was a Greek. And if they knew his father was a Greek, and they saw him walk into their synagogues, how do you think they'd respond? These Jews who thought the Gentiles were were unclean pagans, they couldn't be in the same place, they wouldn't run up to him to try to welcome him and build a conversation with him. They would want to get him out of there. He's unclean. He's a Gentile. But Timothy knew, and Paul knew, Galatians 5, 6, that in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. And so if if circumcision is a barrier, they tore down that barrier. They made it possible for Timothy to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Jews. So, Timothy's uncircumcision was a barrier to the gospel. They tore it down. Hudson Taylor's clothing Barrier to the gospel, tore it down, be free. What are the barriers to the gospel in our lives today? What are the barriers to the gospel 
in our lives today. Take a minute and think about that. If there's anything in our lives that truly doesn't matter and is getting in the way of the spread of the gospel, shouldn't we throw it away too? In fact, it's more than just we can do so. We should do so. It's important to do so, to tear down those barriers. But here's the catch. Christians have done a very bad job of tearing down barriers without tearing down the gospel. Isn't that true? Christians, especially in the last hundred years or so, have done a very bad job of tearing down those barriers, those things that separate us from the world, without simultaneously tearing down things that really matter. Like a couple weeks ago, we were in Summersworth uh, tearing out stuff. It was demo day. People were just going to town, uh, swinging hammers left and right. I was just afraid that we were going to take a swing at a wall that should have come down and take out a pipe with it. <laughs> but that happens. We can do that. When we tear down these barriers, there are things that are really important. The gospel itself and things that are core to the gospel that should not be torn down, that we must defend. Now, let me give you a couple examples from history because I think you'll be able to understand. This happened recently, just about 100 years ago, with uh, the rise of modern science. As, as science uh, uh, came into, came into uh, or modern science was spreading more and more, uh, a lot of Christians thought that anything supernatural would get in the way of the faith of modern man. And so they decided what they would do was they, they would just throw out anything supernatural. Anything supernatural in the Bible. They would look in it. They would, they would say, uh, virgin birth, that's not how it works. Let's, let's throw it out. Um, the plagues in Egypt, oh, well, those can be explained. The parting of the Red Sea, well, maybe it was more like a reed sea. Maybe they just waded across it or something like that. They took all of these things and they threw them away. But as a result... The churches that did so, as that generation died, those churches died away. Because if those churches lost what, was, what they did, was they lost what was core to the gospel, that we have a God who is transcendent, who is supernatural. There is no category for a Christian that doesn't believe in the supernatural. And because they, didn't, and because they tore down the gospel along with barriers. That church did not thrive. It Rather, it died. Now, the same thing happened in a similar way, a very different way, with what we might call the seeker-sensitive movement of the 80s and the 90s. It's a, it's a different story because it's far less uh, black and white, far less, uh, far less of a, of, of, we might say, outright heresy. But for baby boomers and for Gen Xers who are starting to float away from the church, leaders in the church started uh, to remove anything that built unnecessary barriers between people in our culture and the gospel. And again, that's a good thing. And what's amazing is this seeker-sensitive movement, they did a pretty good job for the most part saying, hey, you know, we don't need uh, to sing songs in this way necessarily. It's fine to do so, but hey, if that's a barrier, hey, let's modernize our worship. You know, things like that. That's not a huge deal. But the problem is that while some of these seeker-sensitive pastors started tearing down these barriers, they didn't tear down the gospel, but they did start chipping away at the gospel just a little bit. And in certain ways. 
Because what some pastors in this movement started doing was whitewashing the gospel, trying to remove the offensiveness of the gospel. The reality is if you lose the offensiveness of the gospel, you kind of lose the gospel. After all, the gospel is the message that we are sinners without hope. And that our only hope is in a God who came and loved and died to save sinners. That's the gospel. The gospel is that you are far worse than you think you are, and you are far more loved than you can ever imagine. You remove the fact that we are far worse than we think we are, and only keep the fact that you're far better than you could ever, or far more loved than you can imagine, then you can rightfully think to yourself, why, yes, I am. (laughs) And it doesn't become good news, it's just nice news. Your God's not a king, he's a grandma. The reality is, we, they, some pastors went all the way in this movement to say, let's not talk about sin, let's just talk about God's love. Let's not talk about submission to Christ, let's just talk about our freedom in Christ. In other words, they were preaching a half-truth. A half-truth, masquerading as a whole truth, is an untruth. They lost the gospel Some of them did. Because if we don't know we're sinners, what's so amazing about grace? If we don't understand God's wrath, how and why do we need to be saved from it? If we don't talk about submission to Christ and Jesus is just our friend, then how can we teach them to observe all that I have commanded you? Why listen if he's not our king? Why listen if he's just our friend? In this movement, the gospel, in some ways, in in some churches, lost its foundation. And again, uh, these seeker-sensitive churches today are shrinking, getting smaller. This movement has come to an end. And we could go on, because there are endless examples of churches that have tried to do this good thing of removing barriers, but made the mistake of going a little too far and tearing down the gospel, or at least wearing down the gospel along with it. But the point that we have to understand is this. When we tear down barriers to the gospel, we must do so so slowly and so thoughtfully, so carefully and prayerfully. Tear down barriers, but don't do so haphazardly. Now, when we think about our culture today, what are the barrier battles that we're facing today? Where are there barriers that Christians are trying to tear down today? And what does it look like for us to do so wisely, do so cautiously, carefully, slowly, prayerfully, faithfully, and biblically? I think the area of the biggest uh, Barrier, the biggest barrier that we want to tear down, perhaps, and is in the areas of human sexuality. When people look at the church, when the world, our culture looks at the church, it's in this area of human sexuality that it feels like there's the biggest barrier. I mean, this is the thing. You talk to people who don't know Christ, and it doesn't take long for the conversation to turn to the topic of, like, what do you, what do you think about like, gay issues or gender, things like this? This is the barrier of our generation, of this current generation. Whether, whether, uh, whether you're an older person or a younger person, that is the conversation that's happening right now. 
Because the world hears of our biblical sexual ethic, and it sounds to them like a barrier. They say, okay, so really, you, you really believe that the only appropriate place for sex is in the context of a lifelong marriage between one man and one woman? Man, how old-fashioned, to put it politely, how bigoted, to put it directly. I mean, those are the, those are the charges thrown towards the church now, and so some people in the church, we want to, you know, we see this barrier being built between us and the world. And man, we want people to come to believe in Jesus. That is a good impulse. We want nothing to get in the way of people coming to Jesus. So they say, hey, let's, let's tear down this barrier. Let's embrace any kind of sexual orientation, any kind of uh, sexual act, uh, homosexual, heterosexual, sexual sin across the board. Let's just let it go. Let's embrace it. Let's not let that become a thing that prevents people from coming to Jesus. Or we do it passively, where we don't embrace it, but we just keep quiet about it. I know that person, you know, is living with their girlfriend or boyfriend, but, you know, they're coming to church. We're just happy they're coming to church. In one of those two ways, we're working to tear down barriers, but I wonder if we're tearing down more than just the barrier a little bit. And here's why tearing down this barrier isn't just tearing down a barrier, but is actually tearing down the gospel along with it. It's because when we ask people, when we lead people to Jesus Christ, we're not just leading them to offer them salvation, we're asking them to follow a king. When we call people to be Christians, to believe in Jesus, there's a part that comes before that. Repent and believe. To turn from the sin, the, what was fleshly in us, and turn to Christ. Put to death what was earthly in us. And be united with him. And so, biblically speaking, there is no category for a Christian who says, Jesus is my king, but I decide what's right. There's no category for that in Scripture. A Christian who says, Jesus is my king, but I decide what right business practices are. Jesus is my king, but I decide what's ethical on my taxes. Jesus is king, but I decide what's appropriate for me to say with my mouth. Jesus is my king, fill in the blank. Jesus is my king, but I decide who I get to sleep with. Following Jesus means bringing our lives into conformity with Jesus. Letting him not just have our souls, but have our lives. So, how do we appropriately tear down these barriers? Appropriately tear down these barriers in the area of sexual sin without tearing down the gospel. Three steps. Number one, we love everyone with the love of Jesus Christ. And when I say that, I'm talking about the Jesus who was the friend of tax collectors and sinners. What I'm saying is we don't withhold affection and love for people just because they don't believe the same things we do. We don't withhold love for people just because they're living in sin. Because... That's actually, that is when we cross that line into bigotry. You know, people who are living in, in sin, 
are people who deserving of the love of God as well. Bring, these pe- bring people who don't live in the same way that you do or believe the same things you do or have uh, different, different uh, tact towards uh, or different beliefs about sexuality than you do. Bring them into your home. Bring them into your church. Bring them into your heart. Love them. Show them the love of Jesus Christ. That has to be step one. Step two, give them Christ. Tell them the story of Jesus Christ. Tell them your testimony. Tell them the fact that you, they, all people are all sinful. That we all deserve judgment for our sin. That all of us stand condemned before a holy God. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8 Tell them the message that though all deserve judgment, all are loved and saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then, step three, Call them to walk alongside you as you both seek to conform your lives to Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. As you both seek to put to death what is earthly in you. That includes trying to have holy practices in your finances, holy practices in your speech. Bring your anger under the control, under the submission of Christ. Bring your self-perception or arrogance to the throne of God and your sexuality as well. Submit to the plan of God together. Now, this is hard for one of two reasons. This whole conversation is hard for one of two reasons. And I don't want to just come up here and blast it out there and say, all right, get your act together because it is complicated and here's why. Either, and I'm, I'm sure this is true for almost everybody in the room, or everybody, at least most, either you struggle with holy sexuality or you love somebody who struggles with holy sexuality. Whether it's homosexuality, heterosexuality, whether it's cohabitation, uh, premarital sex, porn. If you're not struggling with it, somebody you love probably is. So how do we think about this? How do we actively take steps not just to love them, but to actually encourage them? If they're followers of Jesus Christ, if, they, if they've submitted to God to bring their life into alignment with what he calls us to in this area, this hard area. Well, if there's somebody you love, If there's somebody you love who struggles with living out holy sexuality, who calls themselves a follower of God, number one, don't withhold your love from them. Don't withhold your love from them. Don't take yourself out of their life. But at the same time, if they are truly calling themselves followers of Christ, also do not turn a blind eye to them. Talk to them about them in love. That's hard. But call them to holy sexuality. Call them to do what is right rather than what is easy. Because the reality is sex is a gift. It is a good and holy gift given by God. But he put his boundaries around it. And what we have to remember is this. The God who made the boundaries is a good and loving God. The boundaries he made are good. He has never done anything not good. 
and he has given them to people he loves. The thing we probably don't talk about enough in this whole area of human sexuality is that the boundaries that he gave us in the areas of sexuality are for our flourishing. They're for health. They're for holiness. And while sometimes it's hard for us to see and believe that, this is something we hold, just like everything else he says, by faith. And besides, we look around our lives and our world, even our own personal experiences, and man, when I see myself or other people stepping outside the boundaries that Jesus gave, I don't see flourishing. <laughs> I see more destruction. And so if somebody you love is struggling with living in holy sexuality, is calling themselves a believer, continue to love them. But don't turn a blind eye. In love, talk with them about it. Encourage them. Challenge them. And secondly, if you are personally struggling with holy sexuality, whether that's sleeping with somebody who's not your spouse, pornography, homosexuality, I want to encourage you as well, very similar, don't do it alone. Talk to your friends. Friends who love you and who are mutually committed to helping you live a life pleasing to the Lord. A life brought into conformity with your king, what he calls you to. One place I want to encourage you is to read the books of a handful of, of uh, recent authors. Um, in the last couple years, um, there's been a number of authors. Uh, Sam Albury, Rosaria Butterfield, uh, Wesley Hill, uh, Beckett Cook, uh, Christopher Yuan, Jackie Hill Perry, all people uh, who were homosexuals, but who, when they came to Christ, chose celibacy for the sake of their king. Now, I, these books are amazing. The reason why they're so amazing is because you don't have to struggle with homosexuality to benefit from the example they set. People who choose Christ over temporary satisfaction. And isn't that the battle of all, against all sin? <laughs> to choose to submit to your king rather than submit to our desires? And I have to tell you, I, have, I, know, just, I know a handful of people personally who've, well, who... who have had homosexual desires, who have chosen celibacy for the sake of Jesus Christ, and there's few people I respect more in the world than them. Can we join them? Making our king king. <laughs> Letting him set the lines, set the limits, set what's right, because we will find that, man, when we live in his ways, we will not be met. Well, we'll be met with hardship but we will also be met with flourishing. This is hard. I would love to talk with you more about it if you're struggling with it, with somebody you know and love struggling with it. But Christian, continue to faithfully love, encourage, and challenge your brothers and sisters in Christ to live out holy sexuality. And you as well, in submission to your good and loving king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this, um, God, I 
feel like, I feel like after so many sermons, I, I pray, wow, this is hard. God, it's hard. What you call us to do in this life is hard. You call us to lay down our lives, to die so that we can truly live, God. That's what you call us to do. Um, and that's true in all areas, and it's true in our, the area of sexuality as well. Father, I pray that our church would be a church who tears down barriers in this area without chipping away at the gospel itself. That we would not withhold our love from people who aren't living holy lives, Lord. That we wouldn't withhold our love, but that we would push into them, lead them to you, and then call them to lives of faith and repentance, continually helping them turn back, just as we do, step by step, as we seek to honor you as our King, the King of the universe. Father, by the power of the Spirit in them and in us, help us. We love you, God. We pray this in Jesus' name.